gift of Jesus. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit. Be amongst us this day. Remind us of the incredible gift that we have been given in Christ Jesus this morning. Father God, we just pray that in the midst of your words that we read today, that we be reminded that we uh, trust in nothing else but the amazing message of your gospel. We put our hope and our trust in that and that alone. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Um, for those of you that weren't here at the outset, my name is Joel. Um, I pastor a uh, network of missional communities down in northern Indiana, where Aaron and Janet and the girls are uh, this morning enjoying buggies and corn and I'm sure uh, a beautiful day as well. So um, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for giving them the opportunity to have a break. Um, that is a really important thing uh, in the days of super rock star pastors who preach 52 uh, weeks a year and, um, and suffer for that. Um, it is a good thing that we give our ministers rest. And uh, so on behalf of Aaron, uh, let me just say thanks and, and thanks from his family uh, as well. Um, today we are going to, uh, we're going to cover... Old Testament, New Testament, all kinds of uh, kinds of ground to cover this morning. Um, I want to do a preliminary warning to you that um, this message will start off in a way that you are going to ask in the back of your mind, "Where is this dude going with this?" And I just want to just ask you um, as a favor to me to stick with me, and it's all going to come together. And it's going to make sense. We just got to give it a little bit of time. So we're going to be dealing with some geography today. Um, what I'm going to teach today is going to be similar to sort of some of the sketches that Aaron has been talking about um, in the life of Jesus, talking about particular places of Christ's ministry and what that means and how it kind of brings a fuller light to the story of Scripture. I'm going to do something very similar to that, uh, a little different, um, but we'll kind of see how it all ties in. So hear the voice in the back, where is this dude going, just uh, hang, hang tight. Um, we're going to start our first uh, scripture this morning, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, there are some in the back. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, uh, I just realized you guys have ESV, so if there's a little bit of variance, my apologies. My ESV is like giant, huge, big, and I always like, I don't, it's, I'm afraid I'm going to break something if I set it up here. So if you will join me, uh, our first scripture, Exodus 17, uh, verses 1 through 7 is where we're going to uh, begin today. Um, a little background to where we find ourselves in Exodus 17. Um, some of you may be familiar with the story. God has called Israel out of captivity after 440 years of slavery in Egypt. Um, he has done this through mighty acts. 
of judgment and miracles and has called Moses to lead a group of people um, out of Egypt. That is what will be known as Israel, the Hebrews. And um, in doing so, we see throughout the book of Exodus, though God is uh, visibly in front of them, making himself known in their presence, time and time again they go, is God really with us? I know he took like two million of us out of Egypt uh, and like overcame all these obstacles, but like, okay, lucky shot. Uh, maybe, maybe God has left us in this mess. And so God again and again tells Moses, I will make myself known in the midst of the people. Early on when God calls Moses, uh, Moses says, well, what God should I, say, uh, should I say is sending me to do this? And God simply says, uh, uses his the name of the Lord, Yahweh, it says, I will be who I will be. That is, you will know what kind of God I am by how I operate in your midst, what I do in your presence. And so we're going to see an example of this uh, coming up in Exodus 17. I begin verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So just a quick recap details here. Uh, they are in a desert wasteland. They are thirsty. Um, the, the locals are getting restless. Moses gets a little concerned because these people, when they're cranky and thirsty, they tend to kill people. And I might be one of these guys, so Lord, what am I to do? And uh, so, and, and rightfully, if you're in the desert, you need water, obviously. But we notice the, the nature of Israel's question is, is that it's, it's a matter of is God the kind of God who enjoys torturing us in the desert? Who enjoys taking us to a place where we need him more than ever and then abandons us? Is it that kind of God that we serve? Because the God of the Egyptians, the God of the other lands, that's the kind of God they serve. A God that gets his chuckles out of giving people a hard time. But is Yahweh that kind of God? And God says, you'll see. You'll see what I do. So, sure enough, um, Moses goes to the rock, strikes it with his staff, and out comes water, and the people are provided water, and the story goes on. He's closed. Done. So, God tells Moses, strike the rock with your staff. He does. Water comes out. Problem solved. We wish. So, uh, we move on through the story. Israel's still in the desert. They keep on going on through the desert. And again, our next text, if you will follow along with me, Numbers 20. You're going to have like a case of deja vu here again with Israel. Uh, Numbers 20, we're going to begin in uh, 
verse 1 and go through verse 13. Numbers 20. In the first month of the whole Israelite, uh, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert? That we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, no figs, no grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Sound familiar? Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gathered the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took his staff from the Lord's presence, just as he, was, as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. How to win friends and influence people. Listen, you rebels. Must we, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, if you read this story in parallel to the previous Exodus event, you're reading closely, you go, uh, what? Okay, so, so let's look at the details. First of all, Exodus, Moses speaks to rock, or rather, Moses strikes rock, water comes out. Numbers event, God says to Moses, you will speak to the rock, and water will come out. But instead, Moses strikes the rock twice, water still comes out, but... In this instance, in the Numbers instance, it is not seen as a faithful act. God says to Moses and uh, his accomplice Aaron, You did not trust me enough to honor me as who I am, the God who saves, the God who delivers you in the midst of every opposition from every side, the God who gives you living water in places of desert and dry land. Because you did not trust me to be that kind of God to you, um, you now lose your uh, ability to enter this promised land that I, that I have given to you. And we'll see, we'll see that at the end of Deuteronomy, that Moses uh, reaches a certain age and goes off to uh, be buried with his people, as it says, and then and Joshua will take, um, will take the Israelites to the next, to the end of the promised land. So what's the difference here? Why is it okay in Exodus for Moses to strike a rock and water comes out, and that's all right. But when Moses strikes a rock in numbers, it's not okay. It's seen as an unfaithful act. Now, some would just simply say, well, God told him to speak to the rock, and said he struck it. So that demonstrates lack of trust somehow. I think there's something deeper going on here. I think there's a little geography and a little wait for it, hydrology, uh, that is the study of water going on here that we can kind of uncover. So we're going to have a multi-media experience today. Um, 
anyone who wants to laugh at my poor cartography, feel free, but um, we all can see this, I think. Yes, sort of. Okay. Um, ish? Yes, good. Okay. So, um, just a quick recap. Israelites, they come out of Egypt, they head down south to Mount Sinai. This is our Exodus uh, 17 event right down here, okay? In the southern, toward the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Then our Numbers 20 event, they headed north up to the desert of Din, up here, just a little way south of the Dead Sea. Dead Sea, it looks sort of like a humpback whale. I, that's how I think of it, I don't know. So, um, moving right along here. This is the desert of, uh, of Zin. Lovely real estate, won't you agree? <laughs> Lovely. Um, ain't no water for miles. And this is out looking out southward, basically, to where the direction from which uh, the Israelites would be coming, looking down toward um, uh, toward the Red toward, yeah, toward the Red Sea. Um, so here is what is going on in the southern tip here of Mount Sinai in this peninsula. The rock formations there, these rocks to speak of, are hard granite, solid granite rock. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never seen water gush out of a solid granite rock before. They're dense, they're not porous. Water doesn't flow out of them. So, Moses is commanded, strike the rock down here, this granite rock that is down here, and water will flow out of it, and people will know, God has done a miracle. God is on our side, he is with us, and deliver us. When they head up north um, to the desert of Zin, completely different land formation, completely different uh, geology, the rock type is completely different. Um, when we head up into this area, uh, we get this kind of rock right here. Now, these pictures were taken while I was studying in uh, Israel. These are taken from En Gedi, which is part of this little bit part of the north here along the Dead Sea. Um, similar, it's the same kind of rock formations up in this in that area. So I've taken pictures here. We can kind of just see porous rock. This is it's completely different, not granite, it's kind of limestone. This is the part where we go, okay, where can he go in so, um, right here, this is, this. You now I went in the dry season, so this is not like the awesome example that I wish it would be. Uh, this is an example of water coming out of a rock right here. What happens? Rain flows miles away in the mountain range. Trickles down through the rocks. Finds a low spot where it no longer can flow down anymore and heads downhill toward, toward a low spot, i.e. this area up here. As it, as it trickles down, as it collects all the sediment from the rock and all the minerals, it picks up minerals in that water, and then it finds a low spot to which it starts collecting behind, a rock. Okay? As it picks up all those minerals, it forms what is known as a mineral dam. Yes? Um, and basically, all you have to do is if you are a good shepherd in this area, is look at the rock, see where a mineral dam has formed, Hit it with a staff or a hard object, and lo and behold, water comes out. So here's the deal. When God tells Moses, speak to the rock, 
don't strike it. The reason is, is he speaks to the rock and water comes out. That's a miracle. That's God providing. If Moses strikes the rock, the Israelites go, good job, Moses. Nice shepherding. Well done. Superstar pastor. Way to go. And so it makes sense. We go to, we go to the end of, end of Numbers. But the Lord said to Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Remember, in the Exodus account, the demonstration of the water from Rock is, is in front of the elders of Israel, the smaller group of people. In Numbers, it's the whole congregation. It is this group of people who have been taken out of slavery but haven't had the slavery taken out of them yet. Who have trust issues and faithfulness issues and continue to, continue to wonder, who is this God? Is he really with us? Does he have the power, the might, and the ability to rescue us from slavery? And so, here in uh, this part of, uh, of the desert of Zen, we find Moses hijacks God's gospel witness from the Israelites. He makes it not about God's glory, not about his honor and fame. He makes it about himself. Using tricks of the trade, common local wisdom, uh, what we might call uh, a programmatic uh, approach toward ministry. Um, if I get the right, just get the right uh, sort of techniques in line, that'll do the trick, that'll take care of the problem. God says, no. You speak to the rock. I do the work. I reveal myself in their midst because that's what they need. They need to hear that I alone am sufficient to deliver you. Not Moses, not Aaron, not tricks of the trade of, of shepherds. And so we start seeing, so this is a, an early gospel pattern that we start seeing. We, we, hear, we hear, hear the early echoes of, of what uh, the New Testament will proclaim about God. We, just, we start hearing them, we, we have a ear for it. And we, and we hear the straightening up the rocks that have water coming out of them. And we, we can see it in this desert place. Uh, even in dry season, you know, water will collect. Okay, fast forward with me. The book of Acts, if you have your Bibles, the book of Acts. Acts 17, we'll begin in verse uh, 22, go through verse 34. Acts 17, 22 through 34. <clears throat> Acts 17, little quick little background here. This is a recount of uh, Paul's missionary journey. He um, is at this point in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. And so um, in, uh, let's see here. So he's, yeah, he's waiting for them to come and he has an opportunity to speak um, upon uh, Areopagus or what is known as Mars Hill. He has a, an opportunity to speak um, to the thinkers of his day. And many that are in the area. So uh, in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Uh, among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named uh, Damaris, and a number of others. So uh, Paul comes in to Athens, and Paul, in this case, in his missionary journey, he uses uses the tactic. He's going to um, use a little pop culture um, to uh, bear witness to them. He says, "Look, well, hey, I'm going to use your poets. I'm going to quote your poets. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm going to use this these these idols that you have, these statues of, of gods, and and this unknown god, you know." Because all of them wanted to cover their bases. So if there was a God they weren't representing, let's, well, okay, the unknown God, that'll take care of all the rest that we maybe forgot about or didn't know about. And so they put that there. He said, this unknown God that you talk about, I'll tell you who that unknown God is. Um, he's, that's God I proclaim. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't do, is Paul does not directly uh, preach Jesus to them, never mentions the name of Christ to them. And it says, of you... A few decided to follow. A few. So from Athens, Paul then next goes to Corinth. And we're going to see a shift here. Um, if you will, I told you we're covering a lot today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 1. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians here, and he's recounting... Um, his time with them, immediately following his trip to, to Athens. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Do we hear a slight echo back to Numbers and Exodus? Your faith must rest not on the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. It's interesting here. Paul with the Corinthians changed his approach a little bit. He, he went to Athens um, using some of the tricks of the trade, per se, some of the common language amongst the Athenians, and some followed. I, and this is a slight speculation, I think it was a mild success for Paul. I don't think Paul was terribly pleased with how the, uh, the Athens engagement went, because he goes to Corinthian, the Corinth, immediately following, and, and throws out all his, um, his rhetoric and says, listen, I... I, when I came to you, I knew nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Period. Here is the gospel. This is the thing in which I am putting out on the table. This is the thing in which I have trusted in and which I'm calling you to trust in alone. Again, not trusting in the wise, the persuasive words, the techniques, the programs of men. We trust in the good news of Jesus. Um, we, um, as a culture today, uh, as followers of Jesus, um, live in a situation um, where I would argue there there is a there is an ongoing debate about the nature of the gospel, what it is, what it is not. There is an ongoing um, Conversation amidst uh, outwardly Jesus following churches about is the gospel alone sufficient to form Christ's church? Or should we add some upgrades? Um, I don't know about you, when I uh, you know, first started buying uh, laptops and you get them and they're bright and shiny and new, and the operating system needs nothing else. It's as it should be. It's perfect. It runs smoothly. And you're like, this is the best thing ever. And then, oh, wait, updates, upgrades. We need to, it's not working as well as it, as it was before. Um, just, I just wish, like, for, you know, like, for once and for all, what I get is all I need, and I and need to add nothing to it. It's sufficient, and, uh, you know, I can have a laptop for 10, 15 years, no problems. We know better than that. This is the struggle in a similar way to, to where we find ourselves as, uh, as Christians in our culture and, and continually. Is the original version, is gospel version 1.0 sufficient for all time? Or do we need to add tactics, better programs? Do we need to uh, find uh, better words to describe it? Do we need to stop talking, using all this theological language, all this biblical language, and start and start using you know some more popular terms? I hear that I hear that a lot. All the fancy words you use, justification, sanctification, and all those things. Well, it's in the Bible. I have to be faithful to what Scripture has put before us. And so those those things are are important, <clears throat> and inevitably. <clears throat> and this is where uh, my friends here at Redeemer, I want to encourage you to speak to you specifically on this point. 
when a new faith community begins, there's, a, there's an excitement in the air. There is a, a new life that's just kind of bursting out of, out of old life. Everyone is thrilled and excited about that, and it seems as though all we need is the gospel and the gospel alone, but eventually someone will ask the question, what new programs should we offer to gain, either to grow our church, to be more relevant? What should we add? Well, I'm not here trying to talk you out of programs or out of, out of certain techniques or approaches, but what I do want to talk you out of is thinking that anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ grows a church. Nothing else but the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection, his blood poured out in our place, nothing apart from that grows the community of Christ. Nothing. Zilch. Zero. Not gospel 1.2 or 2.0. God gave us the gospel. Uh, the beta version was perfect as it was. It was when it came, it was perfect and solid, and it would last us until eternity, until He comes again. <clears throat> that is the kind of trust, the kind of hope that Christ is calling us to. <clears throat> Where we've gotten distracted at times is a belief that. Um, well, yes, the gospel is good, but we need to like, I don't know, we gotta like add more to that. We we gotta, you know, we gotta teach our kids, you know, like we gotta share the gospel with them and teach the gospel to them, but then also we gotta like in addition teach them how to be nice kids and we have to give them these nice moral lessons. And we have to, you know, teach them how to behave or whatever. And what quickly starts happening is, is that our our focus is about us controlling the circumstances in which we are growing up in Christ as opposed to letting primarily first and foremost the gospel form who we are, our children, the next generation. Um, in a book, uh, it's, it's funny, I left my copy of this at home and so when I got to Aaron's, uh, I was like, oh, it'd be really nice if he had that book. Sure enough, he does. Um, surprise, surprise, Aaron, if you've seen Aaron's library, uh, Forget about it. Um, well, yeah. Um, in his book, Michael Horton, in his book, uh, Christless Christianity, The Alternative Gospel of the American Church, he writes and begins in his first chapter by saying, um, he's posing this. Uh, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio, if you can imagine. <clears throat> Barnhouse speculated that if uh, Satan took over Philadelphia, which was the city in which he uh, pastored, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday, where Christ isn't preached. Everything looks nice, clean, everything's running well. The system is going around as it should be. But if the gospel is not at the center of it all, Satan still wins. The enemy still wins. You'll note that in both cases, uh, both in Exodus and in Numbers, the people got water. The end result was the same. 
but one honored God and one did not. Be, let us be careful and mindful that just because thing, things seem to be nice and pleasant or getting better, that does not mean that God is in it. Because if his gospel is not in it, then we have gone astray. Like sheep that wander off so easily. For a final reading here, I want to take us to uh, 1 Corinthians, or Corinthians still, chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. Hear what Paul says to the Corinthians. I, 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 this is, it seems to me, um, a refreshing word whenever I come to it in the midst of uh, circumstances where I'm beginning to uh, doubt my own uh, direction, when I begin to doubt uh, my own efforts as preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. I read Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of... First, importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to one, <clears throat> appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than, any of all, than all of them, yet not, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, <clears throat> whether then, it is what uh, it was I or they this is what we preach and this is what you have believed the gospel as of first importance that takes a massive amount of trust on our part because what it does is it takes control out of our hands out of people that like to like to work and make things work in our own way. It takes the control out of our hands and demands that the control is ultimately in a Savior who sets us free. Who may call us into desert lands where there is no water. When we're used to coming from places where there's plenty of water and plenty of meat to eat and plenty of provision, he might call us to difficult places. Friends, there might be difficult times ahead for this community. There may be challenges there will be uncertain days. But if our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and nowhere else, we can be assured that we are being faithful and trusting God and honoring Him as holy in front of not just the top smaller congregation of people, but in front of the world. Let us be who we say we are, followers of Jesus. Believers in the good news. That has the power to save us, to redeem us, to sanctify us, 
to bring us before God as justified. I'm going to call up our uh, our team here. We're going to sing a short little number. I'm sure we all know it, the doxology. So if you guys will all stand uh, with me. brothers and sisters of Redeemer Bible Church go out uh, into this world as people who speak to rocks and don't strike them. Peace be with you. Amen.